Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Do pull out your message outline. Um, as we're in this uh, series of messages, we're in part five of uh, this six-week series of messages uh, called 40 Days in the Word. It's part of our spiritual growth campaign, as you should know by now. And we're working our way through uh, a number of different things as we're thinking about what it is to, to, to get into Scripture. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at really how do we understand the meaning of a text, uh, a particular Bible text. And regardless of the kind of study that you do, um, you always come back to four main category questions. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. The first is observation, and what you simply do is you ask, what does it say? And you write down specifically what it says. As you read it, as you look at it, you look at what it says. Then you go to interpretation, and you ask the question, well, what does it mean? The Bible means what it means, and we'll talk a bit more about that today. Then you go to correlation. This is where you ask, well, what does it say in other verses in the Bible that will help to explain this particular verse that I'm looking at? Because the best Bible commentary is the Bible itself. And when you don't understand a particular passage, uh, you look at what other verses say to help you understand it. That's called correlation. It's connecting verses together. And then the fourth step in Bible study is application. That is, what am I going to do about it? Uh, you see, as I've been saying all the way through this series, the Bible uh, wasn't simply given to us just to kind of, kind of increase our knowledge. The Bible is given to us to change our lives. And so every time we read scripture, we should be saying, well, what does this mean to me? How do I apply this to my life? Now today, we're going to look at interpretation and correlation. How do I understand the meaning of a text or a Bible passage? And we're going to use as a model a passage where Jesus gets very personal in John 15 that was read a moment or so ago. And I'm going to show you what it means and what it doesn't mean and how to model getting the right meaning of a particular passage in the Bible. See, the Bible teaches that God expects us to be faithful. And not only faithful, God expects you to be fruitful. Fruitfulness, or bearing fruit, is one of the major themes of the New Testament. You see it there time and time again. And one of the key passages on this is this one that we're going to look at today in John 15. Now what I want us to do is to focus primarily on this concept of fruit. But I also want to show you a verse that can be misinterpreted. John 15 is one of the most misinterpreted passages in the entire, uh, in the entire Bible. And if you ignore the rule of interpretation, you will get this wrong. You, you've heard people say, um, perhaps when you've been in conversation with people, when you're chatting to people about the Bible, uh, and they will say this, maybe if you're talking about the Bible and discussing it, they will say to you, maybe, well, that's just your interpretation. As if, you can have, uh, as if you can have interpretation, and I can have interpretation, and someone else can have an interpretation, uh, and they are all equally valid. That is not true. Each verse in the Bible has only one meaning. Now, it may have multiple applications, but it has only one interpretation. The Bible doesn't mean ten different things when it says something. It means only one main thing. But there are many applications, and this is where people often get confused. There are many applications, depending on whether you are, for example, a man or a woman, or you're young or you're old, or, or you're married or you're single, uh, or you live in the 21st century or in the first century, there is a limitless number of applications in every verse of the Bible. But there is only one meaning to each verse. And if you don't get that right, you will go off the deep end. 
you can make the Bible say anything, actually, if you ignore the rules of interpretation and just take verses out of context. As I said last week, the key is context, context, context. So I'm going to show you how to interpret verses correctly this morning. Um, we're going to kind of do a Bible study this morning, which is always a good thing. I'm going to show you a problem verse. A problem verse in this passage is verse 6. When you first read it, it sounds kind of scary. This is what it says. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, this verse is a verse that has been misinterpreted so many different times. See, some people take this verse and they say, well, this is what it means. It means this. It means that, that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And if you don't bring people to Christ, God is going to throw you away. In fact, you're going to lose your salvation. In fact, it is possible to sin so much that you can lose your salvation and then you're going to burn in the fires of hell. And they use this verse to back that up. Is that what this verse means? Absolutely not. And that's a gross misinterpretation and it totally ignores the context and the rules of interpretation of Scripture. And so how do we get this right then? And I'm going to show you that this morning. Now, you're going to have to work a little bit harder this morning. Um, oh dear. Uh, anyway, um, we can do this. It'll be worth it. Now, if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open your Bibles to John 15. We're going to move around a few chapters, actually. Um, there are some verses on the outline, but not all of them. So we're going to focus in on, on John 15, particularly, but around that. So let's look at this and see what we can deal with this and how we study this. Here's the first principle. You consider the historical context. You ask this question, who is this being spoken to and why are they being told this? Until you know the who, what, when, where and why, you don't know what this verse means. So, long before you ever ask, what does this verse mean to me, you need to ask the question, well, well, what did it mean to the people back then? Why was it written to those people back then? Who was God talking to then? Who are the original hearers, the original listeners, the people that are getting this written to them? In other words, what is the original meaning of the text? Not some application for today, we'll get to that later, but what did it mean for the people he was talking to then? Who was God talking to? Why is he saying it? And when is it being said? Now, this particular passage in John 15 is a passage on bearing fruit, right in the middle of a four-chapter conversation that's all said on the same evening to the same group of people. Mark that, that's really important. It was said the night that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and taken to be scourged before he was crucified. This is the last conversation of Jesus before he goes to the cross. Remember, Jesus has spent three and a half years with his 12 disciples, hand-picked men who he's training to take on, on the ministry after he dies, resurrects, and eventually goes back to heaven. So these are the guys that he's focusing in on here. He wants to spend some time with them. And so what he does, he takes them to a very private place for a private conversation. And what he's saying here, it's not to a vast crowd. Remember, Jesus spoke to thousands of times in different places and to many people in different crowds. This is not to a huge crowd. No, he is speaking to a small group, his disciples. 
What he's saying here is to his most trusted followers, the people he loves the deepest because they have been with him, they have spent their lives with him over these past three and a half years of his public ministry. And in John 13, 14, 15 and 16, what we have is one extended conversation that all happens on the same night to the very same guys. Then in John 17, Jesus prays for them and then he is arrested and then he is crucified. So to understand chapter 15, you've got to go back to chapter 13. To understand the context means to look at the verses before and after the verse you are in fact studying in particular. You don't just pull it out of context. And I want to spend a little bit of time to take you through what happened before and after and up to the point where Jesus talks about bearing fruit. So we're going to go back to chapter 13 because remember, these are Jesus' farewell instructions. And when somebody is saying their last words before they die, you listen to those words. And what Jesus is going to talk about in this conversation is the most important thing that he wants us to understand. Because if there was anything more important, well, he'd be talking about it, wouldn't he? So Jesus takes the disciples to a private room called the Upper Room. There they observe the Passover, which becomes the Last Supper or Communion, which we now practice today. Here's John 13, verses 1 through 5. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. In other words, he knows that he's going to die on the cross. He's told them that many times, incidentally, so he knows. That's why he's here. He knows all of that. Having loved his own who were in the world, and now he's talking about the disciples, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So what he's going to say in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 is going to show the full extent of God's love for them and for us. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, Jesus knows who he is, so he's now going to perform an act of service to the disciples that's going to blow their minds. And by the way, you can't serve people until you know who you are. The number one thing that keeps you from serving other people is insecurity because you don't want to be treated like a servant because you're not secure in yourself. Jesus knew who he was. He is God. So he says... He, so it says he, he does this lowly act of foot washing. Now in those days they wore sandals, as you know, so their feet got dirty every day. And it was a common custom that whenever you went to somebody's house for dinner, the first thing you did was that you would wash your guest's feet. Because when you had a meal, you didn't kind of sit upright, you reclined. And feet were rather prominent during the meal time, so you kind of wanted nice, fragrant feet, wouldn't you, really? So this is a big thing, really, and this was always done by the servants. And Jesus, a guest of honour, as it were, he does the unexpected. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, wraps a towel around himself and begins to wash the feet of the disciples, who previously, incidentally, had been arguing amongst each other about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But they felt a little bit awkward at that point, don't you think? Because they cannot believe what's going on here. He is serving them like the lowliest servant. 
verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, no way. Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And by the way, you don't understand what Jesus is doing in your life right now, but you will understand later. Rarely do you know and understand what God is doing in your life when he's doing it. It's usually when you look back and you reflect and you look back in hindsight and you go, ah, yeah, now I see what God was doing. I didn't know at the time, I didn't understand. In fact, I perhaps didn't even like it. But, but now I see that God was in that circumstance. I understand what God was doing then and to me. Jesus is Peter, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing right now, but, but later you, you will understand it, trust me. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. By the way, that is a contradiction, isn't it? You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. He's either Lord and you say yes, or you say no and he's not your Lord. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hand and my head as well. First of all, it's no way, and now it's everything, isn't it? I mean, he's an all or nothing guy, isn't he, is our Peter? And he's like, yeah, give me a complete bath, Lord, let's, duck, let's go. Verse 10, Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now, remember, Judas, he's still in the room at this point. Jesus goes, you're, you're clean, but, but not all of you, because he knows Judas is still there who is about to betray him. Later, Jesus says to Judas, whatever you've got to do, go do it. And Judas leaves. And then later, actually, in chapter 15, he says, now you're all clean. Why? Well, because Judas wasn't with them anymore. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, he's given us here a beautiful picture of serving one another. It's a powerful picture, actually, if you look at it and think about it. So, this is the first lesson, remember, same conversation. This is the first lesson he's given to these people closest to him in his life before he goes to the cross and dies. And Jesus knows that they are going to be absolutely devastated by his death. They're going to be in shock. They're going to be saying, it's not meant to happen like this. I mean, he was meant to be the Messiah. This was going to be the new kingdom. You don't, you don't have a dead Messiah. He says, guys, look, you're going to be really confused about all of this, but listen, you're going to need to love each other and you're going to need to serve each other. So I'm giving you this example to just hang in there together. And for the rest of chapter 13, Jesus emphasises the importance of loving each other because he says you're getting ready to go through some really tough times. I know what's coming and I want you to love and I want you to serve one another. Now then we come to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, Jesus makes a number of promises. This is, remember, the same conversation. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen. You can read this later if you've got a Bible in front of you, but I'm going to summarise it. Remember, they are still in the upper room. He's still talking to these 11 disciples. Judas has now left. He, he knows they're going to go through some stuff, so he gives them some promises to really encourage them. And in the first 11 verses, he says, look, don't worry. Yes, yes, I am going to die, but listen, I am going to rise again. 
then I'm going to go to heaven, and then I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come and get you. So don't worry. It's all going to work out. That's the first thing he does in chapter 14. And then in verses 12 through 14, he says, and by the way, look, you don't need to worry because you can talk to me anytime you like in prayer. I'm not going to be here physically anymore. I'm not going to be in the same room as you face to face physically, but you can ask anything in my name and I will do it. And my father, well, he will be glorified in the son. So look, don't worry. Guys, don't worry. Look, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you and you can always, always talk to me in prayer. That's pretty good. And then in the next verses, verses 15 through 25, he then says, don't worry. Are you getting a bit of a theme here? He says, look, don't worry because because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he, he, he's going to be with you and he will be your strength and your comforter and your guide and your counsellor. So, so, so you don't need to worry. I'm going to be here. I'm not going to be here with you, but the Holy Spirit, he will be here with you. He will be indwelt in you. And then he says in the last verses, 27 through 30, he says, Look, don't worry. He really doesn't want them to worry, does he? Don't worry because, because I'm going to give you the gift of peace. It's a peace not as the world gives. In the world, you're going to have hardship and there's going to be difficulties. Man, you're going to have a really tough time. But you can count, and you can count on that, actually. But, but, but I'm going to give you my peace. I'm going to give you a peace that, that, that my kind of peace, it overcomes the world. So, so just to summarise, gents, I, I, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you and you can talk to me anytime in prayer and I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you and I'm going to give you the gift of peace and know that, that, that no matter what goes on, you're going to be at peace on the inside. It's all right, isn't it? That's all chapter 14. Same conversation. At the end of chapter 14, the last verse, he says, come, now let's leave this place. So Jesus and the 11 disciples, they now leave the upper room. Remember, that's where the, this conversation was taking place. They go down into the valley. Jerusalem, you see, is up, up on a hill. Uh, and so they, they come down the other side of the mountain where there is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to pray uh, and then he's going to be arrested. And they're walking through the vineyards, heading towards that direction, the vineyards of Jerusalem, and Jesus sees these vineyards and he decides to give them an object lesson. That's where he starts in chapter 15. I am the vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me, it's going to bear fruit. But if you get disconnected from me, you're not going to bear any fruit. So you've got to stay connected to me, guys, he says. And he talks about bearing fruit by staying connected. Then at the end of that object lesson, he says in verse 11, I've told you this, all these things about serving and about loving and about heaven and about how you can always pray and about the Holy Spirit and about the gift of peace and and about bearing fruit. (coughs) Remember, this is all one conversation. I've told you all of this, he says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, that's the context. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. What is he sa- why is he telling them this? Why is he saying this? To give them encouragement. That's the context. Now, knowing the context, 
What do you think the odds are that Jesus meant when he's trying to give them, trying to, to give encouraging words to his disciples who he knows are going to be discouraged and he loves them and he wants to encourage them and so he says to them, you guys, look, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off from me and you're going to lose your salvation and you're going to go to hell. I've said this so that your joy may be full. It's nonsense, isn't it? You'd be amazed how many people use this verse to say that kind of thing. Doesn't make sense in the context, does it? It it makes no sense at all. The the context totally disproves that idea that he's talking about hell and that you can lose your salvation. And and as we get into this, you're going to see what it means, in fact. So so the first thing you have to do when you're doing a a study of Scripture, when you're looking at a passage, when you, you look at the verses before and after, what does it mean? That's the context, first of all. Secondly, the second principle of interpretation is you define the key words. If you're going to get the meaning of the right or the right meaning of a Bible verse, you've got to make sure you understand what the words actually mean, not what you think they mean. Now, just because it means something somewhere else doesn't mean that that in that particular verse. We talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago. Words have multiple meanings. Um, I talked about pin, didn't I, a little while ago? Let me give you another one. Um, For example, the word band. Well, the word band can mean um, a thin strip for binding. It can mean a group of musicians, uh, a ring of elastic, or, or a gathering together. Different meanings. But of course, the context determines the meaning of the particular word. That's what we're saying. So when you look at a verse in the Bible and you see a word, you can't automatically assume. So like this word, fire, people go, well, that must mean hell. Not necessarily. You see, for example, in this particular passage, in John 15, the word love is used nine times and the word fruit is used nine times in 17 verses. Now, most of us can figure out what love is, but what is fruit? Because, you see, if God expects me to bear fruit in my life, I better know what it means. So, how do I know what fruit is? Well, people say, well, that's obvious because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, kindness, self-control. Those nine qualities. Well, not automatically. You see, the word fruit is used 45 times in the New Testament. And it's used, it has at least 10 different meanings. You can't just automatically assume you know what the word means. For example, Matthew 3, verse 8, the word fruit is used for the fruit of repentance. In Matthew, uh, in Matthew 26, verse 29, it talks about the fruit of the vine, and he's talking about wine. In Romans 7, 5, it talks about, what, about we bore fruit for death, and he's talking about a sinful lifestyle. Romans 4, 15, verse 18, we received this fruit, talking about an offering of money as fruit. Galatians 5, 22, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That's the nine godly attitudes. In Ephesians 5, verse 9, it talks about the fruit of life, which is truth, righteousness, and goodness. Colossians 1, verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, talking about new believers. And in Hebrews 13, verse 15, it talks about praise to God, the fruit of our lips. When you praise God, that is fruit. So what is it then? If God says, I'm to bear fruit in John 15, Jesus is saying this is so important, it's one of the last things I'm going to talk about, Well, we better know what fruit means, shouldn't we? What is Jesus talking about when he says we must bear fruit in this context? 
well, thirdly, that brings up the third principle of interpretation. I must interpret unclear verses with clear ones. You see, in this passage in John 15, we find three clear characteristics of fruit. What it means to grow spiritual fruit in our lives. We find them in verse 4, verse 8, and verse 11. What are the three characteristics of fruit? First of all, bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. That's the first thing you need to write down. If I'm doing a Bible study, that's what I look at. And in verse 4 it says, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Now, now remain means to, to continue, to abide, to connect, to last. It, it simply means just to be connected. A branch that's disconnected from the tree ain't going to bear much fruit, is it? It's not going to stay, it's got to stay connected. That's all he's saying. Be connected to me and I'll be connected to you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Notice bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. That's not reading into the text. That's very clear here. In fact, he says it three times. He says, you stay in me, you're going to bear fruit. If you don't stay in me, well, you're not going to bear fruit. If you don't stay in me, you can't do anything. See what he's saying here? That's what it means to bear fruit. So the first thing we learn is that bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means fruit is an inside job. You can't just tack it onto your life and pretend like you're bearing fruit. That would be like taking, say, a barren tree with no leaves on it and then kind of tying apples onto it and saying, I've got an apple tree. No, you haven't. Uh, But, you know, a lot of Christians try to do that. They try to tie on good works to their life and they say, see, look, I'm bearing fruit. Check me out as a Christian. No, 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 you're just tying it on. It's got to come from within, you see. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit flowing in you is going to bear fruit. Fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Secondly, bearing fruit brings glory to God. That's really important that we understand that, that we don't just bear fruit just for our own benefit and to kind of show off. Far from it, in fact, it brings glory to God. Now, how do we know that? Well, because that's what verse 8 says. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Again, very clear. When I bear fruit, it brings glory to God. And thirdly, bearing fruit will give me complete joy. It will give me complete joy. And in verse 11, we get the third characteristic. Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus tells us that his motives for, taking, for talking about bearing fruit is joy. He says, so that your joy may be complete. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God and it's going to give me complete joy. Now, I don't know about you, but now I'm interested in that. I want to know what fruit is because I I want to live a joyful life. So so we learn three things about it, but but we're still stuck with the question, well, well, what is this fruit then? If I'm supposed to bear it, I better figure out what it is. How do I do that? Well, then you go to the fourth principle. The fourth principle of interpretation is this. Look for the most obvious meaning in the text. Now, do you know what? This is the exact opposite of what some people want to do. They want to find some deep, deep... They normally go like kind of husky voice. 
I want some deep meaning. I want some deep teaching. I want some deep meaning, some, some hidden meaning in the Bible. And they kind of look at you quite intensely when they say that. Hey, listen, there are no secrets in the Bible. Why would God put secrets in the Bible? Because you see, the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God, not to conceal him. Why would God give us the Bible and tell us what he's like and then kind of hide it from us? That would be stupid. There's nothing hidden in the Bible. It's just there. It's obvious if you look for it. So, so all this stuff about, um, you might have heard this or read about this kind of stuff, all this sort of thing about Bible codes and secret meaning, there's one word for that. Nonsense. <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. There are no secrets in the Bible. No secret code, no secret formula, no hidden message. God doesn't play games with us. He gave us the Bible to reveal himself to us. In fact, if you've ever read, if you've ever read a verse in the Bible and you come up with an interpretation that nobody else has ever seen, one thing is really simple. You are wrong. Because God, for 2,000 years, has been speaking to his church. If it's new, it ain't correct. Because if it's truth, it's been around forever. So you look for the obvious meaning. So what is the obvious meaning about verse 6, our problem verse? Let me read it to you again. Here it is, the problem verse. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now remember he's walking through a vineyard. Remember this is all one conversation. Here's the point. A fruitless fruit tree has lost its purpose. The purpose of a fruit tree is to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it is not fulfilling its purpose. So he says, what good is a fruitless fruit tree? Nothing, unless you use it for firewood and then you get some value out of it. He's not talking about going to hell. He certainly won't be talking about going to hell saying, um, I'm gonna, I've said all these things to make you happy. It doesn't fit. And when you take it out of its context, it's an excuse to make up anything you want. So, so what you do is you let the text speak for itself, and then when you let the text speak for itself, the meaning becomes obvious. So let's just go back to the text. Look at verse 7. Look what it says. Jesus says, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. What is he talking about here? He's talking about prayer. So three things. First of all, remaining in Christ, being connected to Christ, produces answered prayers. Have you ever thought about the fact that prayer can do anything that God can do? So why not ask him for big prayers? Prayer can do anything that God can do. Because it says, Jesus says, whatever you wish and it will be given you. Now you say, yeah, but hang on a second. I've asked for a lot of things and I didn't get those things. Well, let me just say this. If God doesn't give you what you ask for, it will always be something better. Now, maybe you don't think it's better, but God knew it was better. And God is God and you're not. 
God will never give you something worse than you've asked for. He will always give you something better than you've asked for, even if you don't realise that. And so when you pray, don't ask God what you think is good for you. Say, God, I want you to give me what you think is good for me because you know what I need more than I do. So remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. Secondly, answered prayer brings glory to God. Again, very similar, isn't it? Remember, this is the same conversation, same 11 guys Jesus is speaking to. John 14, 13, I will do whatever you ask. There's that phrase again. In my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, and then I will give it to you if it brings glory to the Father. Why? Because it shows how loving God is. What do you need to be asking God for in your life? Jesus says, ask anything in my name. It will bring glory to God. It will cause you to remain connected to me. And then thirdly, answered prayer gives me complete joy. Now you see how this is similar John 16, 24, same conversation, same group of guys. Jesus says, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. There's that phrase again. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. And Jesus uses this phrase, your joy will be complete, when he talks about bearing fruit. And so Jesus, in, this fi- in his final words to his disciples, says, guys, look, I want you to ask. I'm not going to be here with you anymore, but you can talk to me anytime you like and you can ask and I want to give and when I do, you're going to have complete joy. Remaining in Christ is going to bring glory to God and answered prayer will bring joy to you. When you don't pray, you don't cheat God, you're cheating yourself, he's saying. You're missing out on the fruit God wants to produce in your life. Now, are you seeing the connection here? Are you still with me? You see, bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Bearing fruit gives me complete joy. And answered prayer comes from remaining in Christ. Answered prayer brings glory to God. And answered prayer gives me complete joy. You see the connection here? Just in case you missed it, Jesus mentions it one more time in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, what's the first thing he talks about after he talks about fruit? Prayer. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So looking at the context and letting the text speak for itself, you write this down. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about losing your salvation because you didn't win somebody to Christ. He's talking about fruit comes through prayer. All the other virtues in your life come through prayer. Prayer is a password to everything God wants to do in your life. But the problem is, so often we treat prayer like a spare tyre. The spare tyre is there when we have a flat And when your life goes flat and you're in trouble, what do you do? You pull out prayer. In fact, we say, ah, do you know what? All we can do now is pray. Like, that must be really bad. It must be really bad if that's all we can do now. Like, prayer is the last resort. No, no, prayer should be the first thing we do. 
God does not want your, doesn't want prayer to be seen as kind of like a spare tie. He wants it to be the steering wheel for your life. It's where you get all the fruit in your life. Listen, if you are not praying, you have no fruit in your life or very little fruit. You're just kind of hanging apples on the barren apple tree. It all comes through prayer. That's what Jesus is saying here. The more I pray, the more fruit I'm going to have. Now, a Bible study isn't a Bible study until you get the what am I going to do about it part. And let me just finish with this really quickly. There's the personal application. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24. It's the memory verse this week. Did you feel a bit stressed during that, by the way? <laughs> Whew. It's great, though. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if I put into practice what I've learned today about prayer, for example, then I've built my house upon the rock. And when the storms come, it will stand. If I don't put into practice what I've heard today, and I kind of just fill in the outline, or I haven't been bothered to do that, or, or I go home and I forget it, then the Bible says I'm a fool. The Bible says the foolish man builds his house on sand. He hears it, but he doesn't do anything about it. And the Bible says that's absolutely foolish. So that's why the last thing you need to do is we don't need to talk about prayer. Uh, we, we need to pray. That's why the last thing I want you to do is to write out an application. You might want to do that now. You might want to do that when you get home. But just one sentence of what am I going to pray about this week so that I might bear fruit? Where do you need to bear fruit in your life? I want you to be a wise person. I want you to bear fruit. Pray about that. Bring that before God in prayer. And I also want you to work on this verse this week because if you hide the word in your heart, then you will have the power to change. And then you're building your life upon the rock. Lots of stuff to think about. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. We thank you that you created us to bear fruit and you want our lives to bear much fruit. And thank you that you created prayer so that we could talk to you. And prayer really is a privilege, Lord. Fact that you, the creator of the world, would want to listen, much less answer our prayers, is absolutely astounding. Thank you that you want us to be filled with joy. And forgive us for not praying more. Forgive us for treating prayer like the spare tyre that, that we use, as it were, when we get in trouble, in, instead of using it as a steering wheel for our lives. Thank you for this tremendous resource that you have given us in prayer. And I pray for a church full of people who are bearing fruit in their lives, in every area, through answered prayer. Lord, help us to pray more, that we may see more fruit in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.